get to open the word to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. This is our final message in Partakers of the Divine Nature. It's taken us from the Epiphany, where Jesus manifested him, uh, manifested God as the Holy Trinity at his baptism, and we've been trying to participate our way into the Divine Nature, all the way to this climatic moment in Matthew 17. Um, boy, as we said, um, no, well, let's, let's, I'll say that later. All right, let's pray. Lord, long ago, you spoke to our fathers, the prophets, but in these last days, you have spoken to us by your son, the same son whom you appointed the heir of all things, through whom you also created the world. He is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so we ask that you speak to us now through your son and uphold us by the word of his power that we may radiate your glory. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. Matthew 17, let's read it. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, They saw no one but Jesus only. Matthew 17, Jesus reveals his divine nature. You may ask, what does all this and that mean? This is what it means. Jesus reveals his divine nature. God was manifest as the Holy Trinity at the baptism, and he said, this is my beloved son. Now we hear the same refrain here at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is now manifesting that he is in the divine nature. He is part of it. This is what is revealed to us. The reason it is revealed to us is so that we may understand that it is possible for humans to participate through Christ in this divine nature. As the bridge between humanity and divinity He brings us into the divine nature and he shows us what this glory looks like. 
And Peter, James, and John get to see it. We get to see it. We get to be invited in. So this is the final closing of our series. Started with the baptism, went through the Sermon on the Mount, closes right here. This is also, by the way, the turning point of the whole gospel story of Matthew. From this moment on, Jesus is no longer going to be going around Galilee, gathering disciples and healing people and giving parables. Instead, from this moment on the mountain, when his glory is manifest to his three, John, James, and Peter, he will now turn his face toward Jerusalem. The story turns. Now his focus is on his passion, the suffering, the crucifixion about to come upon him in Jerusalem. And his goal now is to get his disciples to understand that you have seen my power, you've seen my work, I've called you to follow me, now it's time to see where this leads. The transfigured glory of Christ they see on the mountain is something that we can participate in, partake in, but it goes through Jerusalem. This is part of the path of glorification for the saints of God. It comes with the death of ourselves so that we may put on his self. So this is a turning point for Jesus, for the disciples. It's a turning point for us too. I mentioned at the beginning of our prayer hour that this is the Sunday before Lent. Lent is the 40-day period that since way back to the earliest times of church records, the church has used these 40 days as a season of fasting and prayer so that we repent and get our hearts right before the Lord as we look forward to the coming of Easter. It is, in other words, our participation with the disciples in going with Jesus to Jerusalem, and we ask him to crucify our flesh, get our nastiness out of the way so that the glory of God may be revealed through us. That's what these 40 days are. Brothers and sisters, it starts on Wednesday. Wednesday is when the 40 days start, takes us all the way to Easter. That means we're going to have 40 days, and I really encourage you to fast and increase your prayers during these 40 days. This is a time of repentance and confession and getting right with God. Which means there's going to be some darkness. Whether it's fasting, <laughs> oh, that's rough. Praying more, praying for some people alone is hard, but increasing prayer and asking for confession and letting God show the filth in our lives so that we may be renewed, so that we may be transfigured. This is dark. Jesus is going to go through it. The disciples are going to watch in horror as they lose their Savior, think they lose him. We're going to go through it in these 40 days. Are you going to go with Christ? And if so, we need this vision of the revealed glory of Christ to get us through the darkness. His light is what carries us through darkness. Because brothers and sisters, what we need is the experience of the glory of God, not new knowledge about the glory of God. That's what he's doing for Peter, James, and John, all three of whom will suffer mightily for Christ. What gets them through that? They saw and experienced the glory of God. They didn't just say, Jesus taught us really well, let us write letters and launch churches and give you guys more knowledge. Yeah, we got to know some things, but there comes a point when knowledge gets you only so far and you must see the transfigured glory of Christ in our midst. Think of it like this. You've heard that there's a really good restaurant. Oh, I don't know. Let's just throw this out there. 
Let's say you've heard that Blue Jay Burger, our newest joint up here, is worth the money. It's worth the trip. You have new knowledge. Oh, it's good. You go, you take a bite of Blue Jay Burger, and you experience it. And you say, wow, that's good. Even though you already knew it's good, you were surprised. Why? It's not because you gain new knowledge. It's not like your friend told you it's good because they didn't give you more knowledge that made you enjoy it. It's because you experienced it. You sank your teeth into it. You were full body immersed in it. What we need is experience, not more knowledge. That's how we get to, uh, that's how, that what will carry us through the darkness and the hard times. So, all right. What is going on here? There are all these incredible scenes in Matthew 17 here. Now, perhaps you remember um, Moses. On Mount Sinai, Moses glimpsed God's glory, but he was hidden in the cleft of the rock. But here's what's really cool, is that when Moses ascends Mount Sinai and talks with God, by the way, he prays and fasts for 40 days, just like Lent, And then he comes down the mountain. And you know what we read in Exodus chapter 34? It says this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face had shone because he had been talking with God. His face was transfigured. It was shining as he came down the mountain. And then it goes on. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. What was going on? I believe that Moses got to have a glimpse of what humanity lost when we sinned in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned? It says that they hid because they realized they were naked. That does not mean that as they ate the fruit, they didn't realize their clothes fell off. That's absurd. It means that something was removed that made them feel vulnerable. And some have proposed that they were created to wear the glory of God as those made in his image and his likeness, that they were robed in his glory, in his light. And that when they sinned, that was removed. They fell from his likeness, and now they felt naked, and that they were hiding. What else does Psalm uh, Romans three twenty three mean when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the glory? We've fallen short of the glory of God. But yet Moses gets to talk with God as Adam and Eve did in the garden, and what happens? He begins to glow with the glory of God. Well, if that's amazing, then what we're seeing in Matthew 17 is that the glory of God that Moses experienced on Mount Sinai is experienced by us in Christ. That's what Matthew wants us to see, that what was once experienced on that mountain is now experienced in Christ. And he shows us this six ways. 
I, I, there might be more, but I saw six obvious hints where Matthew's like, hello, Christ is the new Mount Sinai. What happened there is now happening in him. You don't have to be Moses. Anyone can come to Christ and experience this transfiguration and glory. So look at this with me. In verse um, one, here's hint number one, that this is Christ taking the place of Mount Sinai. Hint number one is in verse one. After six days, why six days? Because in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, it says that Moses waited for six days while the glory of God covered Mount Sinai in the cloud. And on the, sixth, on the seventh day, God called him up. Why six days? Because this is the new Mount Sinai. And then they go up. Jesus, um, in verse 1, it continues. This is the second hint. Uh, he took with him Peter, James, and John. Moses took Joshua with him. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. In Exodus 24, verse 12, God said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain. So here's hint number two. They are going up a mountain. Moses went up a mountain. It's a pretty obvious connection, but there it has to be said. Number three hint is in verse two. And Jesus was transfigured before them and his, specifically, face shone like the sun. We already looked at Moses' face shone. Here's a specific connection. Number four. In verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses, does it get more obvious? <laughs> Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, Moses is obvious, but why Elijah? Because Elijah also had an encounter with God on Mount Sinai. These are the two figures in the Bible that hear God's voice on Mount Sinai. You might remember he defeats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then he runs for his life because he's persecuted from uh, Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, that wicked boo-hiss woman. And then um, he hides at Mount Sinai. And there, you remember there's a wind, there's a fire, there's an earthquake, but he hears nothing in any of that. Then there's a still small voice, and he hears the word of the Lord. They're at Mount Sinai. So... Um, their presence here testifies to us that you will hear God's voice like we did, but we're not standing on Mount Sinai anymore. We're standing with Christ. He is the one through whom, or the location, or the place where, or the one in that you hear the voice of God. And as if on cue, what does God say in verse, what is it, verse uh Verse 5 at the end, this is my beloved son. He speaks with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Hint number 5 is in verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, let I will make three tents. Three tents. It's a little baffling. He's like, what, are they going to camp? Like, that doesn't seem like the thing I would want to do if I was seeing this. Maybe I would want to, like, with the word tent in the Greek, is actually tabernacle. It's tabernacle. Peter is thinking of Mount Sinai. What did God reveal to Moses on Mount Sinai? 
he revealed the plans for the tabernacle, which he would then build so that the people could come and worship him. Here, Peter's thinking, wow, this is like Mount Sinai. Let's build tabernacles for worship. No, Peter, we're not going to build tabernacles anymore. It's not a tabernacle you need. It's now Christ who replaces the tabernacle. And hint number six, verse five, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Well, Exodus makes it very clear that the cloud hovered over Mount Sinai. Then when the tabernacle's built in Exodus 40, the cloud fills the tabernacle. Then when Solomon builds the tabernacle to become a permanent temple, the cloud fills the temple. And then when the temple's destroyed, it leaves when does it come back? The cloud, which represents the glory of God, comes back here in Matthew 17, and it comes not back to the temple in Jerusalem. It comes upon Christ. This is my son. Hear him. I think that those six hints, you build them together, it's more like a huge neon sign that says, what was once experienced on Mount Sinai is now experienced in Christ. And we take this lightly. And we think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to be Moses to be up on the mountain in like this exclusive place, face shining, hearing God. And the whole time God's like, Ahem, this is my son, hear him. This is my son, hear him. You have this brothers and sisters. Oh, how little we ascend the mountain to be with Christ. Let us be like Peter, James, and John and ascend. And so, okay, we see that that's what happens in Christ, that all of the glory is now put upon Christ, that he is the meeting place. Humanity and divinity are meeting right there. So what we see in this is that Jesus' transfiguration is offering us a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God. This, this, this glory being revealed through Christ is a glimpse. It's a preview. It's a here's what's to come when the glory comes in its fullness. If you will, look at the two verses before chapter 17. This is chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus was telling the disciples right before this, six days before this, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here, <clears throat> Peter, James, and John, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that mean? Six days later, Peter, James, and John see the Son of Man coming. There's a glimpse, there's a preview of him coming in that same glory with his Father right there on the mountain. So Jesus gives them that preview so they can have the experience that would push them through. This glory, this light would push them through the darkness of the coming trials of their life. Jesus is that glimpse. So what we need to understand, brothers and sisters, if we are united with Christ, if we're baptized into Christ, we go where Christ goes. If he is transfigured and glorified and showing us what the kingdom looks like, you're going there too. This is the beautiful good news. We will be transfigured as well. 
Does that sound like an unblushing promise of staggering nature? C.S. Lewis, in his great sermon called The Weight of Glory, uses that phrase to say that the Bible's full of promises that are unblushing promises of staggering nature. That's one of them. Let me read you four key passages that really reveal this. You might want to jot these down and look them up later. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, I bear the image of Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's transfiguration. 1 John 2, 28 to 3, verse 3. 1 John 2, 28, 3, all the way through 3, verse 3. This is great. Now, little children. Now, John, by the way, saw this transfiguration. He knows what he's talking about. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What's hinted at there? Adam and Eve, who are hiding in their nakedness. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has thus this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. What a great text. Romans 8. There's three verses in here. Uh, Romans 8, 16 and 17, or it's four verses, 16, 17, 29, 30. Uh, Paul says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He's putting us on equal status with Christ, is what he's saying. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. You would think if there was some sort of a tear, we'd be called the sons and daughters of Christ. We are not. We're the sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, co-heirs with Christ. Tremendous promises so, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And these are all fancy words of saying, you're saved. <laughs> and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And finally, I'm sure there's more, but these are the four that came to my mind, not with a lot of, didn't take much thought to get these. Matthew 13, verse 43, that's right, actually here in our own, in, uh, just a page over in my Bible. Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous... He's talking about at the judgment. Then at the judgment, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What did Jesus' face shine like? The sun. Very clear that Jesus is saying we participate and partake of the same glory. 
Now, lest we're still a little unsure, there's another witness, Peter, who was here. He actually tells us about this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, when, when he's talking about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, he, uh, come on, Peter, show up. He, uh, and this is chapter 1, verse 16, and this is what he says. Now, now I want you to, okay, so he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's the transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born in him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's almost as if Peter's letter, the second letter, is a, is a sermon or a commentary on the Mount of Transfiguration. And do you know what's really goosebump-ish? I didn't say that right, but... What gives you goosebumps is when you consider that Peter cites this transfiguration narrative on the mount that he saw, he says that only several verses after he said that we may become partakers of the divine nature. It's almost like he could hear the churches he's writing to saying, come on, Peter, we're mere flesh. And he says, yeah, well, I was on the mount and I saw him transfigured. He's asking us to partake with him. Okay, so how, then, do we participate in this transfiguration? How do we do it? There's one more very, very important passage that we need to look at, and I would like you to, actually, I would like you to turn to this one. It's 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You can hold your place in Matthew if you haven't already lost it. Because we'll finish there. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is a staggering passage. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. And we're asking, how do we participate in this transfiguration? And let me tell you what Paul's going to say first, and then we'll read it. Paul's going to say, we participate in the transfiguration. We get transfigured when we behold the glory of the Lord. So there, Peter, James, and John see Christ glorified. If we gaze upon Christ and see his glory as we behold it, he will transform us from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, that's, he's referring to the law Moses received way back. If that ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? What, what is he saying? He's saying that if Moses on Sinai could be somewhat transfigured, and if that transfiguration was disappearing, he then he says later in this text that he put a veil over his face because it was starting to wane until he saw the Lord again. If That happened to Moses on Sinai. How much more will we receive his glory when we gaze at Christ? Because as we've already seen, Sinai is no more. Sinai is now in Christ, and he's a greater and better Sinai. 
So if Moses' face shone on Sinai, how much more ours in God's spirit? Verse 10. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. What does that mean? Moses' glory is as if it was no glory compared to the glory we will receive. So indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, Moses' glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Our place in Christ. And then he talks about that mat, that, that veil, but in verse 18, he gets really to what we're looking at here. Verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. This is what Peter said they did on the mount. We saw the majesty, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from my good works. (laughs) No. For this comes from the Lord who is in the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. That word transformed, it's unfortunate that it reads thus in the English Standard Version, my Bible, and the New King James Version. Because you know what the Greek word there is? It's metaphorio. Do you know what the Greek word is in Matthew 17, verse 2, when it says that he was transfigured? Metaphorio. What Peter's or Paul is literally saying, and it should read if it's going to be consistent, should say, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transfigured into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How is this done? We behold. We behold the glory of Christ revealed to us, or the glory of the Lord revealed to us through Christ, if we want to be super specific. If we do so, we will find two very pressing results. First, the ache which we've been born with ever since Eden, looking for our covering, which we've built societies to try to feel unnaked. We've made ourselves look spectacular with our accomplishments. We tell each other how great we are, and we create all these institutions and these, all these things that we just call the life. It, these are all shortcomings of our great yearning. C.S. Lewis in, the, in his sermon, The Way to Glory, calls it that ache, the old ache. These are all, we're really searching for that glory in the face of Christ. And if we will simply behold, we will find the old ache healed. He talks about it as if a door that we that will finally be opened to us, that we've been knocking on all our life, will finally be opened, and we will be inside the actual reality of all things. Not just on the outside looking, but in and immersed in it. The second result is that we will save others from their darkness. Back in Matthew 17, and back down below the mountain, while they're having their retreat up there, there's some conflict at the bottom of the mountain. And in verse 14, 
This is Matthew 17, 14. When they, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. And that's an unfortunate use of the Hebrew, the Hebrew or Greek. It's actually lunatic. It means one who is moonstruck. Luna, moon. Uh, because what, the word epileptic makes it sound clinical, doesn't it? It makes it sound medical. Uh, what's actually going on is he's possessed by a demon. I think we shouldn't soften this with this is a condition. This is a demonic event here. Just like so many people in the world are held captive by Satan. We need to see this for what it is. Uh, he's... he's He's suffering. He suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. See, there you have it. This is a spiritual problem. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the body was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So, okay, we will be healed of our old ache when we behold the face of the glory of Christ. But second, we will save others from darkness. The disciples couldn't do this. The man needed salvation. My son needs rescuing. And they tried and tried and they couldn't do it. I said, Lord, why couldn't we do it? Because you weren't beholding the majesty. You weren't beholding the glory. You weren't beholding Christ. They weren't with him. They were doing this on their own. And as Christ told us in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Moses prayed desperately to God in, uh, I think it's Exodus 33. If you do not go in our midst, don't send us at all. We're not going anywhere because this is what makes us distinct from all other peoples of the earth is that you walk in our midst. And Charles Spurgeon in his commentary on this passage in the middle of his commentary, he just utters this prayer. It says, he says, Lord, do not leave us. For if apostles could do nothing without you, poor weaklings are we. We must behold the glory of God or we will not be able to pull anyone from the demonic darkness and into the kingdom of the light of Christ. We have no chance and no hope. If we want to see new believers added to our family, if we want to see our friends and our extended families and our neighbors to see the light of Christ, we must see it and we must absorb it and he will work his light in and through us so that others will see it. But if we have no light, what are we offering? We're offering religion. We're not offering religion. We are offering the experience of Mount Sinai in Christ. So three ways to behold Christ's glory as we close. How do we, how do we, I told you behold his glory, it sounds great, but how do, we, how do we do that starting tomorrow? Number one comes from verse 21. Jesus said, this kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. You and I, 
must engage in persistent prayer and frequent fasting. Isn't that legalistic? It might be. If you do it because you are told I have to, yep, that's legalistic, and you have no gain from it whatsoever. But if you want to gaze upon the glory of Christ, then you will see that part of the way to the Mount of Transfiguration is persistent prayer and frequent fasting. Why are Moses and Elijah on Mount Sinai? Uh, Excuse me, well, the other mountain that Jesus is on, why are they there? Both of them were prayer warriors. Moses interceded on the behalf of sinful Israel, and God changed his mind about wiping them out. Elijah prayed for no rain, there was no rain. He prayed for rain, there was rain. He prayed for fire to come from heaven and to consume the altar. It fell from heaven and consumed the altar. Elijah was such a mighty man of prayer that James, in chapter 5, when he's talking about the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much, he cites Elijah as an example of that powerful prayer. Moses and Elijah are prayer warriors, and Moses fasted for 40 days on Mount Sinai. These are not just there with Christ because, cool, they're the hot shots. They're the ones that model how we gaze upon the face of Christ. Because when I persistently pray, I am never closer to God than when I'm pouring my heart and my life and my being into his hands. Prayer has often been called the deifying virtue. And fasting, fasting makes me to stop looking at my body and my needs and to start looking to Christ. There's nothing wrong with my body and my needs, but it can lead to a lot of wrong. But, but fasting just gives me the chance to look beyond myself for a change. Because, man, hunger is one of those things that keeps us thinking about ourselves around the clock. And Americans eat around the clock. Hey, Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, it starts. I encourage you, pray with your spouse, pray with the Lord. How does he want you to fast and pray for these 40 days? Mark it, let's be transfigured in his likeness. Uh, Number two, um, we see it in verse one, develop patterns of solitude and service. Solitude and service. Um, When Jesus finished on the Sermon on the Mount, we didn't go into it, but in uh, 8 verse 1, it said that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And then in verse 2, there's a leper who came to kneel, and Jesus healed the leper. The minute he comes down from the mountain, he's healing someone. This passage, the minute he comes down from the mountain, he's rebuking a demon. Jesus served. In between the Sermon on the Mount and the Mount of Transfiguration, these moments of solitude, of looking to God, of hearing from God, of eating from God, in between, in the valleys, is service. Jesus is doing miracles, and he's teaching, and he's reaching out to those who need him. We must develop the same pattern, but we cannot serve all the time. We must also withdraw, like Jesus in verse 1, he, he, he led them up a mountain by themselves. We must seek Christ in solitude. Solitude is not loneliness. Loneliness is inner emptiness. We are a lonely nation. But solitude is when we have inner fulfillment. Solitude is a state of the heart and the mind in which it carries with it the presence of Christ everywhere it goes. That's solitude. Solitude is choosing to withdraw in order to carry Christ with us as we serve. And Jesus, 
We, saw, we know Jesus serves, but do you know that Jesus sought solitude frequently? Some examples. Before launching his ministry, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and fasted and prayed. Before choosing the 12 disciples, he prayed alone on a mountain all night. After John's death, he and the disciples withdrew to a private place. After feeding the 5,000, he and the disciples withdrew to a private place. After healing all night in Capernaum, he withdrew to a private place to pray. After the disciples return from preaching and healing, he brings them to a private place to recover. After healing a leper, Jesus withdraws to a secluded place. And in preparation for his crucifixion, Jesus withdrew into the Garden of Gethsemane. Solitude. We need to be okay with spending some time without others to make us feel important and to gaze upon Christ. And third, listen to Christ. Verse 5. Peter wanted to build tents and he stop. You don't know what you're seeing here. Listen. 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 Stop building your tents. Stop with your projects. And for a season, listen to the Son of God. In silence, let us turn off our phone, turn off the television, turn off the internet, and maybe pick up the Bible or pick up a spiritual book. A little less of these things and more silence in our lives. And what about our ears? headphones or podcasts or the stereo in the car or music all the time. Just turn it off and let silence, let God speak to you through the silence. Your mind, it's always worrying, it's always anxious, it's always problem solving. Just quiet that and be before Christ or your mouth. We often speak, watch yourself, we often speak in order to shape the way others see us. It may be safe to say that the majority of what we say is to craft our image before others. Let's be silent, and let's learn, and let's let Christ shine his light upon us. So, persistent prayer, frequent fasting, uh, seek balance of serving in solitude, and then listen to Christ. Because, brothers and sisters, We are not static beings. We are always growing one way or another. And what we behold is what we become. If we behold the glory of Christ, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. But if we behold anything else, we will be transformed into glory's opposite. Father, as we come to your table...